Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Ape Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're speaking to an author about the medical world, specifically being a resident in psychiatry. Adam Stern is the author of Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training, a memoir just published. Today, Adam is a psychiatrist at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and also an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. His book addresses the early years of his career when he completed a four-year residency in Harvard's medical program. He describes the ups and downs of learning the trade face-to-face with people in need of psychiatric help and provides an insight into the patients and colleagues that shape his work. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here with you. Thank you for joining us. Um, so first of all, when were you in residency? How long ago was this? I started residency a little more than a decade ago, and it was a four-year program. And perhaps for people who are unfamiliar with the medical profession, certainly someone like, like me, um, can you describe the residency process for us? How does it work? Absolutely. In the States, you go to medical school for four years after college. And I say in the States because, you know, different nations around the world have slightly different systems. But most of them have a lot in common, which is that there's some sort of undergraduate training in basic sciences, things like chemistry, biology, um, physics and mathematics. Uh, And that's followed by four years of medical school, where a lot of people think that you're probably learning how to be a doctor. But in fact, you're mostly learning the facts and the fundamentals of knowledge that will allow you to become a doctor. So it's sort of a a strange dynamic where it's a lot of studying and learning uh, information without knowing the skills that go along with it just yet. And then in your training, in your residency training, that's where you actually learn how to do the job. And that's really where the, the book starts, is at the end of medical school, uh, leading into how do you take someone who's just graduated from medical school with a little bit of knowledge about all fields of medicine and train them up to become a psychiatrist of all things, which carries with it so much um, baggage that people have ideas about what a psychiatrist is. Uh, and, and what's that process like? That's what I wanted to let the reader in on. So it was the end of your general medical training and the beginning of the the time where you're specializing in one particular area of the medical profession. That's exactly right. Okay. So um, at the start of the residency, uh, how green were you? Um, perhaps you could explain some of the feelings you were going through at the very, very start of it. You bet. Incredibly green is the short answer. The longer version is, you know, imagine yourself or anyone else who's listening, imagine yourselves around your mid-20s, because that's about the age I was when I started out. Um, And, you know, I'd gone straight through. Some people take a a year or two here or there to to live out in the world, to travel, to work. Um, I had gone straight through. I was just so eager, eager to get going that I went to college and then I went to med school and I went straight through the residency. And so I was only 26 years old. And the way that psychiatry residencies are structured, they're very, it's, it's very, it's fascinating and strange. You treat the most um, severely mentally ill patients in your early years. So 
the the first two years are spent almost entirely on inpatient services, locked psychiatry units, the emergency department uh, consultations on the general medical units that are uh, where where patients are um, potentially delirious, these kinds of things. And then it's not until third and fourth year of the residency that I got to do what I really wanted to do, which was work with people in a in a an outpatient setting, a longitudinal care setting where I got to see people over time and see their condition hopefully improve over time or, you know, sometimes stay stay the same or even get worse depending on, on the situation. It's quite green to circle back to quite your green. initial question. Um, <laughs> when I first started out, it was incredibly... Um, you know, a lot of my friends from undergrad were out at the bars and were uh, living life and working and making money. And when I first started in residency, it was like I was just um, thrown in, you know, to the deep end, essentially, in this in this field that I knew very little about. So s- some of these situations was where a, a patient had been passed over to you from um uh, an emergency situation uh, where they'd been admitted in, in, in some sort of emergency, would that be correct? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so very often the the sort of path that a patient takes if they're experiencing a very severe acute illness, let's say something like uh, becoming acutely suicidal or acutely psychotic or manic, um, they'll often be brought in by a family member or a member uh, of their community to the emergency department. And from there, they're assessed by a psychiatrist. And very often, it's the psychiatrist's job. This is a part of the job I never grew comfortable with. I just learned to sort of tolerate, but I never was comfortable with it, even to this day. The psychiatrist has to determine with the patient whether they're okay to go home and, and be on their own, or whether it seems like they're in, a, in such a dangerous spot that really they need to stay in the hospital. And that's a lot of responsibility for a young man or woman to take on. Um, and so they would start out in the emergency department, and if they were, you know, if they needed a higher level of care, if they couldn't leave and go home, they would be admitted to the locked psychiatry unit very often. And then you see them over the course of days, sometimes into a couple of weeks, and then ideally they get better enough to go home and, and continue their treatment as an outpatient. So you would have to decide whether they were a risk to themselves or a risk to other people. That's exactly right. It's something that, you know, never in my, as a child, if I imagined what I was doing as an adult and my job as a doctor, let's say, never in a million years would I have imagined that I would be in a position of taking away someone's freedoms, you know, because society has has deemed it so. You know, it's, it's psychiatry is is funny and interesting and strange because, it's the field of medicine that's most closely aligned with what society says it should be, right? So if you break a bone, you go to an orthopedist and they help fix the bone. Society doesn't societal values don't really have much to do with that. But if you are um, harming someone else, society says, "Whoa, you can't do that. You need to be in the hospital uh, if it's a result of." mental illness or if you're a threat to harm yourself or you're not able to take care of yourself, which are frankly the much more common examples of of how people end up hospitalized. So it's a very strange thing that's very much dependent on like uh, the the values that society gives us. And it's something that I struggle with in the book. 
So you talk about um, your own level of confidence and you mention the imposter syndrome several times, but always in connection with yourself. Um, can you explain what this is? Absolutely. Imposter syndrome to me means it's that feeling that you may have experienced at some point in your life where you feel like you're in a little bit over your head. You are not sure that you really have earned your spot wherever it is. And you feel like at any given moment or any day of the week, you might be revealed to be not good enough to be where you are. And so in medicine and psychiatry in particular, I think this is rampant, especially at a, at a, a pres uh, prestigious place like Harvard, let's say, um, because you're surrounded by very high achieving people. They tend to outwardly look like they're doing okay, they're doing their job, they may not be wearing their emotions on their sleeve, and so you don't have access to the idea that everyone's actually struggling, everyone's learning on the job. To you, it's just you. And so I think that imposter syndrome is rampant within medicine, and it's something that you never quite figure out, you just sort of learn to identify it and sort of accept it when it comes on. Even to this day, I'll get myself into situations where I'll say, oh boy, I wish uh, I were a better psychiatrist. I wish I were like uh, that mentor of mine. He would know what to do or she would know what to do. And so that that that's what I think of as imposter syndrome. So in those early months, were you ever close to quitting? Oh, that's a great question because I think that I think that I was. I definitely was in medical school. And the reason I say that is that until medical school, most of my academic life in, in, from all the way from childhood on up, I was able to escape by. You know, I was able to get by mostly uh, just because intuitively I understood the material and I, I could put in a little bit of work and do okay or do well. And in medical school, that doesn't cut it. Even, I mean, there were some people in my class that were amazing at what they could memorize, the cascades of chemical reactions that occur when blood is clotting, things that don't come up on the day-to-day -day basis when you go to see your doctor necessarily, but that make a doctor and, and that they have to understand to go forward. Some people in my class did that. It came more naturally to them. As spending 20 hours of the day reading and memorizing material came naturally. To me, I had to work really hard just to get by in medical school. And that's when I thought most about, you know, is this for me? Is this what I want to do? And it turned out that in psychiatry, um, a lot of that stuff was, in hindsight, important to learn, but not uh, important on a day-to-day -day basis. My patients won't feel the difference between uh, if, I, if I knew that stuff and not. And so I, I think that once I was in psychiatry and I landed and I, I found my footing, in, in especially in years three and four, I knew I was in the right place. The first couple of years, I'm sure that I did think about quitting at times. So when you're being put in these high pressure situations, dealing with these deeply troubled people, um, do you think the process is designed to sort out who really wants the job? It's to sort out the wheat from the chaff. It is, do you think that's what it's supposed to do? I don't think that's residency 
at least not my experience of my residency program, which was a very supportive place. All the educators, their mentors, the people teaching us, they wanted us to succeed. If we weren't succeeding, they would help us um, earlier in the process. So I'm thinking back all the way to undergrad when I was taking organic chemistry. Um, that's like the great filter for for doctors. Organic chemistry is is a class where you know, in those sciences, the the chemistries, the physics, the math, um, those are classes that to get into an American med school, you got you you've just got to get A's or maybe a couple of B's, but you can't really get too many C's. You know, um, a single C might doom your application, uh, and so that's that's where that process comes in. I think that at least I can say in psychiatry, which is sort of by its at its core, a more supportive field than a lot of fields. Uh, they wanted us to succeed and, uh, and they did a good job with us. I think that our, you know, the book is dedicated first to my classmates, second to my teachers and third to my patients. And um, I, I learned a lot from everybody involved. So you write about um, treating some of the patients you met, um, people who with, might have been who were suffering with eating disorders or were in potentially suicidal. Um, how how do you how did you well how do you stay detached from these people when they you you talk about um, learning their life story and to understand the situation that they arrived at to be in this crisis? But how do you stay professional and stay not become too connected with them? That's a great question. I think that I use the analogy that when you're with a patient, you're sort of uh, like reflective glass. So a lot of the um, a lot of the light, uh, and in this case, in the analogy, the emotions of the patient get reflected back to them. It's why there's this sort of um, cliche about psychiatrists asking, you know, answering questions by asking other questions. Um, well, how do you feel about that? That kind of thing. It's because a lot of the job is actually to help patients uh, hear and see their own inner world reflected back to them. That helps people understand who they are, what they're dealing with, how to go forward, uh, all of those things. Um, but some of it makes it through. Uh, some of it will make it through and land in your own mind, in your own heart. Uh, you feel some of those emotions. It's only human. Part of the job is to hold those emotions with the patient and continue and be able to leave it at the door, essentially. So, you know, when I come home and I want to spend time with my family, I've got two little boys at home and a wife. And when I'm hanging out with them, I'm, I, I'm not I would be doing my family a disservice if I was still mostly thinking about the problems that I heard about that day and vice versa. When I'm with patients, I need to actually, for the moment, pause and shut out, uh, you know, ideas and images about uh, what's going on at home. You know, how how is my son doing at camp today? Or uh, has is the baby uh, eating okay? Or that, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so it's it's a challenge. It's not something that I can articulate how I've come to do it, but I can tell you that with experience, it's become a little easier. During my residency training, it was a challenge. I found myself almost adopting some of the symptoms that I was trying to treat at work at home. Uh, if I was working with patients with depression or anxiety, I would start to feel those things. But the more I've worked in this field, the more I've been able to um, 
I don't know if it's a degree of desensitization where it impacts me at my core slightly less because I've been through it before, or if it's more just an issue of uh, putting up protective barriers and leaving things at work at work and, and trying to leave home at home. So in terms of getting help, you, you write about how yourself and other residents in psychiatry um, could seek psychiatric counseling during during the training. Um, how did that feel? Was it something you were willing to do straight away, to have the tables turned where suddenly you're the patient? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question because the history of psychiatry is that it used to be during like the Freudian era that everybody um, in psychiatric training was also in therapy. The idea being that you can't really... Uh, be an unbiased therapist for someone unless you are aware of your own biases. But we don't really do uh, that kind of what they call psychodynamic therapy as sort of the basis anymore. It's really something that you have to train extra for and do choose to do in your in your practice. Um, and so these days, getting involved in therapy during training or afterwards, it's encouraged because it's 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 made easy for trainees because it's something that, again, is thought to be, if anything, helpful. And because you're dealing with a lot of the emotions of your patients and you're carrying that with you. Um, and so I did end up seeking therapy the very first time for the for the very first time when I was in training. And it was a really interesting, useful experience to see it from the other side of the room. Um, I would say something and I would think, and this is true still to this day when I see my therapist, I'll say, well, I know how I would respond if I, uh, if a patient said this to me. And sometimes the therapist will uh, agree, will, will say what I predict, and sometimes they'll say something completely different. And it's the times they say something different that actually helps me the most, because then I realize I'm able to see something from a different perspective than my own. Do you still undergo these sort of um, counseling sessions? Yeah, actually, uh, I had a brief therapy in training. So in my third year in residency, I think I probably spent a couple months, once a week, seeing someone, a few months maybe. Um, and then I gave it up for a while. And then I had a, I had some major life uh, issues, like uh, health issues happen a few years ago. That's when I picked it up again, because I want, I needed a place that was sort of just for me that I could talk to someone without feeling like I was... Um, you know, um, I didn't want to feel as though I was burdening. Not that my family would say I would burden them with these things, but it's important sometimes for people to have just a place that's just for themselves, both literal and a figurative, you know, a time period, uh, a time frame where their focus is on their own inner world and not the things that they have to do uh, to get by. We're all such busy people with so many things that we're doing at any given day. So I think that, that I, I've really found therapy particularly helpful in the last couple of years. Now, you, you write about times where patients cannot be helped or will not accept help. And those passages in the book are quite, quite difficult to read. And there's one lady you wrote about extensively, a young lady, a student, I think, who died because of her eating disorders. Um, these situations must be immensely difficult for you. Yeah, they're they're devastating. They are. Um, eating disorders are not always, but a lot of the time, very severe, very difficult to treat uh, conditions. There's not a single medication that helps every time or or most of the time. It's usually a series of trial 
and um, a series of trials, I'll say, uh, to see if, if a, this class helps or if that class helps or a combination of different meds that might help. And then very often it's very dependent on behavioral therapy. Uh, it involves a lot it, because the condition itself is based around a lot of uh, control. Um, often um, people with anorexia, for example, are controlling their appetite. Um, in some ways, it can be as a substitute for lack of control in part of the rest of their life. And um, the treatment can often be uh, very difficult and um, emotionally trying because uh, part of the treatment is maintaining an adequate level of calories. And so uh, in the book and in real life, very often it comes down to a court-ordered mandate that someone must be fed against their will. It's a terrible thing to have to uh, be in charge of, to be responsible for. And there's a great mortality, uh, terrible mortality associated with this condition. Uh, and people don't think about it uh, unless it affects them or one of their loved ones, uh, that many of these uh, p people with this condition are otherwise very, um, you know, their whole lives are, are ahead of them very often. They, they may be, as, as you mentioned, they may be students, they may be teenagers or young adults, and loss of life in that population is devastating. So this is a, so Adam, this is a dreadfully serious interview. So I've got to ask, are there moments of humor in your profession, in during your residency? Um, are there moments of respite when you can step away and smile? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're right. It can get so heavy that the natural reaction is to come together with humor. You're, you're, you're right on. Um, and the group in particular residency is a bit of, um, I, I hate to, uh, use this analogy because, it is a cliche, and I don't. I've never been in the military, and I don't want to assume anything about the military. But the thing that I will say we have in common with what I understand about the military is a committed goal altogether, uh, where you're aiming at the same purpose, and it's a small group often that works together very closely. And so the group of residents that I worked with, there were 15 of us in our class. There were 60 of us in our whole uh, sort of group at any given time across the four years. And uh, we became extraordinarily close, so close that I ended up marrying one of the uh, residents in the class with me. Um, and you, you become so close that you depend on each other, but then you also learn to live and laugh and love with each other. And it's, it's an incredible thing. We, you know, sometimes we would, um, frankly, just become, you know, uh, you know, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And so when, when people are dealing with very serious stuff at work, sometimes it gets very unserious outside of work. And, uh, that, that was definitely the case for us. Does uh, black humor exist in your profession? It, like I, I'm a former journalist and journalists report on the most terrible things in around the world, but in a newsroom, there's an awful lot of black humor. Yeah, there, there's, there's definitely an element of that. Um, there's no doubt about it. And it's the kind of thing that as, as you allude to, if, if, if people, you know, there's, it's almost like the, the newsroom might be a safe space where people can feel like they can make a joke that is uh, dark in nature um, because the 
content might be so serious that the only uh, one of the coping strategies we have, you know, we talk about Freudian defense mechanisms. Well, one of them is humor. One of the what they call the mature mature uh, uh, defense mechanisms from Freud is humor, sarcasm, things like that. Um, we don't think of that as a defense mechanism, but it is. And so we have that, you know, uh, all over the place in, in medicine and, and psychiatry for sure. Right. There's one sentence in the book where you talk about looking up a condition in a textbook called DSM. And those initials jumped out at me because I know that this particular textbook is one of the best-selling textbooks on Abe Books. Um, first of all, can you explain what DSM stands for and also the significance of that book in, in your profession? Absolutely. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And at present, we're at the fifth edition. Uh, this is a book that's been updated over the decades. Uh, it comes out with a new edition every 10 or 20 years. And it is evolving as we learn about uh, how the brain works and how it dysfunctions in, in various forms of mental illness. But what I find so fascinating about it it's an imperfect document. It's a working document. In the same way that, uh, let's say, the um, U.S. Constitution has uh, the opportunity to amend, make amendments, uh, because it's a living document that ch needs to change with time as the nation evolves. Um, and I don't mean to limit this to only American listeners, um, certainly, uh, but but that you know the the DSM is kind of like that because. Uh, every 10 or 20 years, they come out with a new edition that, that says, oh, you know how we've been calling this condition, uh, 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 let's say, uh, uh, Axis 2 Cluster B, uh, referring to a certain s a group of personality disorders. Well, in, in the fifth edition, let's do away with that, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I'll give you a, another example. Um, in the DSM-3, I believe that was the last edition of this textbook that included uh, issues of sexuality, such as homosexuality, as a disorder. Well, society moved away from that, and, and in my opinion, rightfully so. Um, and uh, it's, it's an interesting, to me, it's a reflection of the documents of the, um, the manual's imperfection, and that it's just written by human beings. The fact that something can exist as a mental illness in one era and not exist in another era. Right. So I was going to ask you if conditions actually are removed from uh, editions, but it sounds like they are. Um, so who puts the DSM together? Who decides what is a psychiatric condition? That's a great question. There's a whole set of committees uh, with key opinion leaders within the field, academics and scholars, and there are a lot of studies that go into it. They want it to be a validated tool. So they want as an example, they want uh, five psychiatrists to all look at the same patient and say, well, this patient has this condition, and here's why. Here are the symptoms that go along with this condition. The challenge is that people aren't like that, and mental illness is not like that. It comes in all different varieties, and one person's depression may seem different to another person's depression. Someone with psychosis, like schizophrenia, may have auditory hallucinations, and another person might have paranoia, and they might have both. And so drawing the lines is a very difficult job. I don't envy the people who are in charge of writing that 
book uh, and updating it and amending it because it is a difficult job uh, to to define what our society says is okay and you know what's eccentric versus a mental illness. Well, to me, as a clinician, the line is drawn when it impacts the person negatively or the people around them in a negative way. If someone can't work or they can't function or they can't eat or, or drink or take care of themselves or they can't maintain relationships because of something, then it's a problem. Uh, and and thankfully now we have lots of treatments for, for lots of these uh, conditions. But if uh, it's not a um, problem, in other words, if someone's functioning really well and they're just sort of um, either strange or different or, um, you know, someone says, well, that person should see a psychiatrist. Well, maybe they shouldn't because they seem to be doing pretty well with all their um, eccentricities just as they are, you know. So th that's the that's the challenge of defining what's mental illness and what's just unusual. Okay, Adam, here's a devil's advocate question. Um, so you wrote a book about your early years in in a professional job, but aren't most professional jobs challenging and difficult in the early years? What makes psychiatry different to engineering? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think you're right that they're, that most difficult jobs, and most jobs, frankly, are difficult in the beginning, as you say. Uh, most of them are challenging, and you do feel like, all right, I don't quite have my feet under me just yet. Let me learn this and practice this and get better at it. What makes psychiatry unique is that you are, as a psychiatrist, you are tasked with managing the mind, the human mind. And it is the most complicated thing that I've ever come across because you can't see it, you can't read it, you can't understand it except by asking someone about it and making perceptions, observations about their behavior. So it's a lot of... Um, it's a lot of secondary and tertiary uh, sort of logic that gets applied in order to try to make sense of someone else's inner world. Your own inner world is hard enough to understand, but trying to help someone else with theirs is a, is a tall task. Some of the decisions you made in those earlier years, if you could go back in time, would you do them again and do them differently? We all look back and, and think, could I have done something differently? Should I have done something differently? The key, though, is with the information I had at the time, did I make the best choice? You know, and so there are, you know, certain patients with uh, who may have had negative outcomes. I wish I could have saved them or done something that would have helped them in a in a more impactful way. Other patients who have done very well, I'd like to do it just the same or even better. But when I start going down that path, I try to r remind myself that, you know, psychiatry is one of these fields where you have to think on the fly. You have to think as the situation is unfolding. Um, time is marching forward and you have to decide what to do. Med a lot of medicine is like that. And so you do the best you can. You make the decisions you can with the information you have. So there's nothing, there's no, there's no one, you know, I, I if there was a, I guess what I'm trying to say is there are certain situations I'll never forget, negative outcomes, bad things happened that I carry with me that I'll remember for the rest of my life. But that's not the same necessarily as saying that I wish I, I would have done something differently because sometimes you can do everything right and still have bad things happen. Right. So today, when you go to a dinner party, 
and it's not amongst the psychiatry crowd <laughs> and you introduce yourself as a psychiatrist what sort of reaction do you typically get oh uh, typically it's one of a few different reactions some of them some people will back away and uh, be suspicious that I am going to, in some way, psychoanalyze them. Which is um, <laughs> the more you knew about, the more you know about psychiatry and psychoanalysis, the more prepo- preposterous it is. Because you know, it's not like I could do that without someone's, uh, you know, uh, going along with it. And I'm not even trained to be a psychoanalyst. You know, um, but so. But beyond that. Um, the uh, another reaction is some sometimes people go the other way and they'll lean in and they'll start uh, opening up about their entire lives. They want to tell me things that they haven't told anyone, you know, and they'll stop and they'll say, I haven't told anyone this. And it's it's an amazing um, it's on the one hand a privilege, but also a bit of a burden. You know, sometimes you want it to be just a dinner party. You want to talk about sports or books or whatever. So exactly. You just want to switch off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So talking of books, our last question, which we asked to all our guests, but what book or books are you currently reading? So at the moment, I'm making my way through The Dutch House uh, by Anne Patchett, uh, which is I've never read anything by her, even though she's a renowned author, uh, wonderful, uh, has a wonderful reputation. This is my first uh, foray into into her work, and it's wonderful. I, I am adoring it. Um, the book that I most recently finished was um, The Codebreaker, which was a biography, a semi-biography. It was focused on uh, Jennifer Doudna uh, and her, she's a scientist that's uh, credited in part with discovering this new technology called CRISPR that's supposed to revolutionize the world. And uh, it, but, but some of the most interesting stuff about it was, was how team science and competitive science across institutions uh, unfolded in real life, how human nature, even among some of the smartest people on the planet, still left uh, room for things like insecurity and um, ownership of ideas and, you know, uh, patent battles and all kinds of really fun interpersonal kinds of drama. So I, I, I adored that book as well, The Codebreaker by Walter Isaacson. Excellent. All right. That's all we have time for today. Um Thank you to Dr. Adam Stern for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Adam Stern is the author of Committed, Dispatches from a Psychiatrist in Training. Adam is a psychiatrist at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and also an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.